Missy Crumb don't like it, it ain't gonna have it, yeah. I miss the crumb don't like it, it ain't gonna have it, yeah. I miss the crumb don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. No bounce house women, got drinking no beer. Miss the crumb don't like it, ain't gonna have it, yeah. Welcome back to the Tinderbox Podcast. You just heard, once again, Mr. Crump Don't Like It, a song about the corrupt boss Crump of Memphis, Tennessee, and a player in the Democrat political machine of the first half of the 20th century. If you listened to our first podcast series, Counted as Cast, you learned all about Crump, rank, political corruption, and how a group of Tennessee-born veterans violently took on a piece of that corrupt political structure in the little town of Athens in eastern Tennessee. Our guest on the podcast today is New York Times bestselling author Chris DeRose, whose new book, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution, does a deep dive into the Battle of Athens itself. I've highly anticipated this book since I heard about it. The story of Bill White and Paul Cantrell and the town of Athens really deserved thorough research. And from the conversation with Chris you're about to hear, covering his sources and his methods and his reflections on the subject... I think that's what's been done here. I'm really excited about this. In this interview, you're going to hear a little bit about some of the stunning facts that Chris unearthed about the Battle of Athens, his views on the morality of the action taken by the non-aligned GI ticket, and even how this event fits into his own professional experience as an elections attorney. Yes, not only is Chris a best-selling historian with some serious chops in the Civil War era, but he's also had a career advising political campaigns on election security. So this was a great interview. You could not ask for someone better to be looking at the Battle of Athens, the civil conflict there, and the political machinations of the contested election of August 1946. On a personal note, it was great to kind of nerd out on some of the questions that have floated around in my head since doing my own work on the Battle of Athens. Things like, how in the world did they end up with so few casualties? How did they keep the peace? And was Paul Cantrell really all that bad of a guy? You'll hear all about that and more. Also, hearing Chris's views on election security in the 2020 election felt like a bonus on top of all the information shared about the riots. It was a fun conversation on an interesting topic. So please consider pre-ordering his book, The Fighting Bunch, which comes out November 3rd of 2020. Or if you're listening to this later, go ahead and pick up a copy. I already pre-ordered mine and I'm excited to get it. If you're a listener to this podcast, I really think that his book is the real deal and I think you'll like it. So without any further delay, please welcome Chris DeRose to the Tinderbox podcast. The book's coming out in November, and um, I'll just put, I'll throw the name out there. It's the Fighting Bunch Battle of Athens and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed, revolu- armed rebellion since the revolution, which I actually, I had heard that, but I'm glad you confirmed that that was the, that that was the case. It's pretty... Yeah, it's- it's a singular event in American history, really, really without uh, any real precedent. I, that's, a, a, you know, and I've told you we've, we've done a podcast on it with Tinderbox. And so I'm assuming some of the people who will be listening to this have had some familiarity with it and sort of know the, the basic outline. But um, that, that seems to be it. I mean, this seems to be there's Shays Rebellion and a couple other things out there, but this is different. Shays, Whiskey Rebellion, the Civil War, none of them succeeded. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah. These guys actually overturned the government of Macmillan County, Tennessee. Yeah. And established a revolutionary government consisting of a three-man commission 
which was effectively a military government. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had three civilians, but they were directing raids against uh, the illegal casinos and roadhouses that had been operating under the previous regime. And uh, they were conducting, um, they were responsible for public safety yeah. uh, until there could be a public counting of the ballots. Um, so about 72 hours later, the, the state representative for this area, who's actually the Tennessee Speaker of the House, okay. comes back to town with his tail between his legs under an agreement, uh, whereas the, the GI has provided him protection um, for all sins real and imagined. And um, he agreed to canvass the votes along with the minority member of the commission who was the GI's representative on the commission, the Electoral Commission. Got it, got so it. Then they turned power over to the, the sheriff who'd been elected uh, and his team who'd been elected uh, under, uh, you know, on August 1st. And that was Knox, right? Um, Knox who, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, had been, he had been a veteran of World War II and he had served with the army in North Africa. Okay. And he'd been wounded in a Jeep accident and had come back to Athens and started a filling station. Uh, and so uh, he was, you know, there were not a lot of people signing up to run against this machine. Yeah. Um, people who had challenged them in the past, even people who'd been publicly outspoken against them, critical um, to say nothing of running against them, challenging them publicly, yeah. had been subject to all kinds of retaliation and reprisal from unlawful arrests of them and their family uh, to having their windows shot out and in some cases. Uh, reputedly to having their, their houses or barns set on fire. Sure. So this is not, this is not a hugely desirable assignment to run against these guys. Right. Right. That's, that's what's remarkable about it is they stepped up, but you know, these are guys who, as, as you've pointed out, were, I mean, they were in, in essence country boys who were sent all over the globe to, yeah. to fight in world war two. And uh, I know that in the, at least in the blurb, I, I haven't read it yet. It's pre, I can pre-order. I have pre-ordered it. Um, and we'll put, we'll make sure to get that, that word out there. Um, but I noticed that you had put Bill White in there who had, who had fought in the Pacific. Um, he's specifically mentioned that of course he's a, looms large as a character, but yeah, these are, these were boys who were sent over and they were all youngsters. Um, you who really did this. Yeah, so it's interesting. So in this case, you know, I think the the legend of the Battle of Athens, um, sort of, it's sort of like an inch deep. You know, people understand sort of the basic contours of what happened, but interestingly, the candidates like Knox Henry and the G other members of the GI ticket didn't do any of the shooting on on August first into August second, nineteen forty six. Right. It was actually a group of these guys who had really been a little bit closer to combat, and had um, a little bit younger, and felt a little bit less compunction about actually going to the mat and risking their lives and risking their freedom mm -hmm. uh, to get in a firefight with the sheriff and his men. Yeah, and right. Knox Henry on the night of the election, and this was something I uncovered that had never been previously, uh, it, it was buried in a small town newspaper in Sweetwater. Okay. But a group of deputies actually tr try to assassinate Knox Henry on the night of the election. And you're kidding. He's, wow. in, he's in protective custody yeah. and had just barely slipped the grasp of the assassins who were out looking for him. Because, you know, while Bill White and the other members of the Fighting Bunch 
had the sheriff and his men uh, stalemated down in the jail. Mm-hmm. Some of the deputies realized that it didn't matter what happened at the jail if the GIs didn't have a candidate for sheriff. That is something. And wow, and that was in some little paper out there? Sweetwater newspaper detailed uh, how Knox Henry had uh, slipped over the county border into the neighboring county and sought refuge. Mm-hmm and um, how some of the deputies who were aligned with the McMinn County political machine, several carloads worth, were out looking for him. That is wild. I Yeah, yeah. oh my goodness. Um, I did want to ask you about that. I actually came across your name when I was doing some research, and I guess it was like last June, Ju- July, August, I found your name in there, and they said that you were at the library collecting stories. Yeah. And I was wondering how you went about researching this, because... Um, it's such a it's such a strange story, and it seems like it's it's in many cases kind of been shoved to the side, um, not necessarily a point of local pride. Yeah, you know, so it's interesting. So number one, this was this story was purposely suppressed for a number of reasons. Um, number one, Bill White and the other members of the Fighting Bunch had committed a lot of crimes. Mm. Uh, they had fired thousands of rounds at a government building, at government employees, and um, had blown up. Um, you know, had used dynamite right. In, right. In, in, in part of ending the conflict. But they'd also robbed a National Guard armory, which will yeah. bring the FBI to town. Yeah. And yeah. Doing, some, doing some investigating. And that actually found memorandum straight from the desk of J. Edgar Hoover okay. uh, directing the investigation okay. into the, the alleged robbery at the armory. Um, and I was able to FOIA some of the documents uh, detailing uh, the investigators' quest to try to uncover these names. Um, So they'd committed a lot of crimes, that was part of it. Mm. Um, But another part of it was that they all had to live together in this town afterwards. You know, a lot of these deputies were mercenaries. They were either from neighboring counties, they'd been brought in to help secure the election. A lot of them were state troopers because Paul Cantrell's political organization in McMinn County was aligned with a statewide organization that was based out of Memphis, that was run by Boss Crump, who's yep. one of the most notorious state-level political bosses in American history. He gets his own chapter in the book, yeah. just to explain how under his thumb the state of Tennessee was at this time, yeah. from um, the legislature to the governor to judges, all the way up to the Supreme Court. If you were allied with Boss Crump, you could count on anything you needed uh, to maintain your, your hold on power. Um, and so, um, but plenty of the deputies on the losing side of this lived in McMinn County. Okay. Um, Paul Cantrell and his, his, Paul Cantrell's daughter and grandson um, and granddaughter continue to re- remain really important and valued members of the community in McMinn mm. County. And so you've got descendants of people who are still there who lived both sides of this. And really, this is something that's easier said than done, but um, successful rebellions to really cement their success need to be magnanimous mm-hmm. to the other side. Yeah. And I think here you saw the town really set a stand for showing grace to the defeated party. Wow. Certainly it could have gone very differently. They had through 10 years of what the Attorney General of the United States described as the worst allegations of vote fraud 
ever brought to the attention of the Department of Justice. Wow. wow. You had people held at gunpoint in polling places, people who were credentialed poll watchers over a course of years who were arrested or forced out of polling places for nothing more than trying to keep their elections secure. Mm -hmm. People who watched ballot boxes brought out of the polling place by armed guards and counted in a secret location, mm -hmm. sometimes in a bank building that was uh, the family bank of Paul Cantrell, or sometimes the jail. So two buildings that are under his control and counted in secret with the results announced. And, you know, the results were, were what uh, the deputies said they were. Mm -hmm. And so they had really been through the ringer. Uh, many of them had been arrested unjustly over the years and seen their family members arrested unjustly, sometimes just to pocket a fee, not even political retaliation, but officers starting with the sheriff, were compensated by a percentage of every arrest. Yes. So you've yes. got this incredible uh, perverse inducement mm -hmm. to just arrest as many people as you possibly can yeah. and, yeah. And, and make a lot of money. Um, I found a letter from a guy who moved to Ohio and he'd only ever lived in McMinn County and he just couldn't believe it that no one had threatened to arrest him in the time he'd been in Toledo. Nobody he knew had been arrested. Nobody, you know, and he, he points out that he had once been arrested in McMinn County for talking too much. And so these people had really been through the ringer and you certainly, certainly could have been forgiven for maybe trying to exact uh, a measure of retribution. But for all intents and purposes, that didn't happen. And so, but part of that is agreeing not to talk about it, right? Beyond the criminal consequences, if you're out there bragging about how you shot at the sheriff's deputies all night and that you're bragging in front of someone's son or daughter or perhaps the person you were shooting at, it's going to be really tough to have a functional community together. Yeah. And so yeah. I really came across it just about the right time, I think, just when the last of these guys was leaving the stage and there were still people who, who knew their parents' stories and had access to their parents' letters and diaries. And uh, in the case of Bill White, uh, audio tapes that had never been heard outside of the White family, which was an incredible yeah. source Go of information. I'm glad you Go got on. to hear all that. Um, one thing that's interesting, just I, I haven't read any of your other work, but you have quite a bit of surrounding the Civil War, at least. And... It seems like, yeah, it seems like you, you have a theme going here where it's this reconciliation or, or not. Um, and, and, and yeah, can you, can you sort of reflect on that? Because Reconstruction was so, um, was such an up and down thing, you know, in the South. Certainly. Uh, so that would be an example of perhaps showing too much magnanimity. Um, you know, I just got done giving your listeners a lecture about how important it is to, to be magnanimous toward the defeated party and how critical it is for functioning together, either in a community or in a country going forward. But of course, Reconstruction is the greatest failure in American history. The idea that we didn't consolidate the gains of the Civil War, that um, newly freed Black Americans find themselves um, subject to, to disparate laws that in many cases relegate them back to the status of slaves. Um, people denied the right to vote, um, which, you know, the thousands of Americans died for, um, but, but denied the basic right to vote and right to determine your own destiny, um, which is what causes violence like you see in the fighting bunch. 
uh, when people can't resolve their differences through a fair election, um, you're not going to be able to exist together peacefully. Yeah. Um, that's what that's what the electoral process is designed to do. You know, for most of human history, if you wanted something from someone else, you went out and took it. Or you know, every conflict had to be settled with violence. Mm-hmm. And this idea that hey, you know, we could at least come up with a fair process for resolving disputes, and you're not going to win every time, but you're also not going to die in the process. And people you love aren't going to die in the process. Um, and so. You know, when we consider basically in that hundred years between the Civil War and passage of the Civil Rights uh, Acts and various civil rights measures and enforcements of the 1950s and 60s, um, you know, you don't you don't have a bigger public policy failure in American history or a more consequential one. And um, you know, one of the things I'm I'm glad to report about the people of McMinn County, Tennessee is that um, they were really far ahead of their time for their community in terms of race relations. Um, The violence on election day 1946 actually starts when a black voter is shot for attempting to cast his ballot. Yeah, Tom Gillespie, yeah. Yeah, Tom Gillespie. And so the people of this community are actually so incensed that someone would try to stop Tom Gillespie from voting and use violence against this revered, beloved figure Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what I think starts to set things on a collision course towards violence. Yeah. Um, because the whole reason you didn't have uh, violence every election day over a 10 year period in McMinn County is because one, I wasn't willing to go there. Yeah. And I think that violence against Tom Gillespie and shooting him while he was attempting to vote was, um, was just crossing a line that had not been crossed before and one that, that people were not going to abide. Yeah. And, it is interesting because despite the despite the violence, despite the shots fired, you know, spoiler alert for people, it's like somehow most people ended up making it out without severe injury. I mean, there were people who were definitely severely injured, but yeah. the, a, a theory my father had about this after I told him about this and I couldn't stop talking about, you know, how crazy the story was, was maybe people were pulling their punches a little bit and it was or like, were people actually shooting with the intent to maim or just the intent to scare? I don't know if you had an opinion on that. I do. Um, yeah, Bill, Bill White uh, pointed out that they got very lucky, that the deputies okay. got very lucky. <laughs> uh, So Bill White, speaking for himself, mm-hmm. certainly wasn't um, trying to pull any punches. <laughs> okay. uh, I think it's more like this. Yeah. So you've got a, a really uh, well-defended jail, right? You've got this like, solid brick building with all these places inside where you could take cover. Mm. And the GI position was uh, on a hill mm. across the street. And the, the hill, which was described as an embankment, was basically the backyard of a boarding house. And you had really, uh, you had trees, you had bushes, you had vines, you just had all this incredible cover. Mm. And remember, these guys are all very highly trained at how not to be targets. Mm-hmm. So they're on their bellies. They're they're adequately covered when the battle starts. Yeah, They've already taken a position where they they probably can't be hit. Um, and one of the things that supports that theory actually is that a, a guy showed up who was a civilian to fight with the GIs because his brother-in-law had been captured and was in the jail. Okay, wow. So him and him and two of his brothers showed up to try to get their brother-in-law to the jail. 
Okay. It was funny when I was I was interviewing, I was interviewing the youngest member of that family who was too young to go and fight that night. Hmm. He kept explaining that his brother had gotten shot trying to resolve it. It's like, what do you mean trying to resolve it? And like, it took a while to figure out, but he was down there trying to resolve it by trying to shoot the deputies out of the jail. <laughs> Was wow. down there making like a peace overture or what was yeah, it yeah right right so he the, the guy i'm describing who'd been shot had gotten a farm exemption during world war ii you know we forget that all of a sudden you know the far, america's farms had to feed so many more people than they ever had before with far fewer hands yeah. um and so a lot of people got farm exemptions to to stay and, and keep the food supply going and so um i mean he he got shot in both pant legs and he got a battle ending injury in the hand and he had only been there minutes. So it really was that the GIs knew how to get, the GIs knew how to, to fire without exposing themselves. Yeah. And then I think once the first few shots came into the jail, the dead all able to find a place where they could shoot and more or less from a safe so you really have a stalemate. But no, I think, I think the deputies are certainly to kill the GIs. I don't think they had any, there was no problem. There would have been no problem, no repercussion consequences for them, you yeah. know, as law enforcement officers returning fire. And, um, you know, I think probably each individual GI probably had a different insight on where their bullets found their mark, you know, but for Bill White, in, in Bill White's dark language, he said they got bad lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had, he certainly had a, had a way with words. You know, I only read his transcripts out of the University of Tennessee. Um, but yeah, what a guy! And great American and a fun guy to spend time with. Not not personally, he died well before I took on this project. Okay. But when you're deep into somebody's personal audio tapes and interviews and interviewing their family, you do really like you come to know them. Yeah. Um, and in a way, they don't even know you're real. You're you're really close friends in real life because I can't read their email yeah. and I'm listening to their private phone conversations and yeah. I'm not privy to what's happening inside their home. Um, but in many cases, the people I've written about from Abraham Lincoln to Bill White, I do feel like I get to know in a way uh, that I don't know many people that I really know in real life. Yeah. You know, it's funny too. And I, you probably had unique insight into this. He, um, seem to have some resentment for the, the guys. And this is going back to what we mentioned, you mentioned before, which was um, the guys who were running for office. He seemed to have sort of like a, look, look, I'm going to go out there and do the fighting so that you guys can get into office later. He seemed to have a certain amount of, um, eh, let the professional fighters take over here. Um, and sort of had that, yeah, I, I don't know what kind of an attitude to call it, but you know, it was very much like, ah, I've been through this before. Um, and here, here it goes again. I got to go do the fighting. Yeah. So it's a couple things. And I think you've, you've keyed in it on correctly. It probably is resentment's probably a good word for it. And I think it's uh, in this case, a, a very justified resentment because, um, you know, Bill White and a very small number of these people went and took this risk that liberated their community and they really were risking their lives and they were certainly risking their freedom. And at bottom, they were risking their ability ever to show their face in the town again if they to escape. Yeah. Um, so they took this risk and succeeded. And like many other wars, right? You have the enlisted people are doing the fighting, the infantry is doing the fighting. And then you have the officers who are at some distant base who are sort of calling the shots when the peace comes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. 
And same is true in the of Athens, where you have this group of people who tended to be poorer, who tended to be enlisted rather than officers, who were willing to go ahead and say, you know what, violence, violence is what's required here. The threat of violence is what's required here. And we were just, you, know, you can see the internal debates within the GI Macmin County about how far people were willing to go. And I had kind of always been of a mind that these guys are not going to let you just win this election. Mm -hmm. We know things they've gone to in the past. We know how much money they're making out of this town because, you know, they're, they're making a fortune. I mean, just imagine a, a criminal enterprise getting control of, of government. Yeah. They set the, they control every election, set the tax rate through the roof. They gave themselves all kinds of pay increases. Yeah. They gave themselves made up jobs that they then assigned themselves. Mm -hmm. There were jobs where people supposedly got paid, but money went missing. Um, there were licenses for casinos and roadhouses and, and houses of prostitution. So they were making an absolute fortune um, staying in power. So given what was at stake, Bill White really had the most clear-eyed view mm -hmm. of humanity and what it was going to actually take to cure the election results. And people didn't want to hear it. They said, Bill, you're going to get us killed. Yeah. Um, you know, and so you can see through the night as people actually drop off. Mm -hmm. You know, first there's a the first violent encounter happens while the GIs are reeling from having Tom Gillespie shot, from having their own men captured mm -hmm. uh, by these deputies, some of them jailed, um, and having the ballot boxes removed to the to the jail for counting, yeah. knowing that they were on the verge of letting this slip away from them. And then there's some deputies that show up to break up the meeting, and that's where things cross into violence. Mm -hmm. And so you can see people start leaving and saying, well, this is getting too hot for me. And as things increase, this is getting too hot for me. When the decision is made to go and rob the armory, there are other people who say, I'm going home and I'm not coming back. Yeah. You know, and the group keeps dwindling. Um, and so it's a very small number of people who actually go and do the fighting. You know, when I first started doing interviews around town, I was told that everyone has an uncle who fought in the Battle of Athens. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a really small number of people. And so after the battle, you know, I mean, Bill White actually was hired as a deputy, which was a great job. And it was a huge honor. And it was one that recognized his leadership position in the battle, his personal bravery, um, you know, his, his personal, you know, integrity, and his ability to lead GIs. Because now remember, this county has 10% of the population is now returned GIs. Yeah. And so um, you really need someone on your police force that understands, you know, GIs and speaks the language and someone that they respect and will listen to. Yeah. Um, but the people who actually ran the county for, you know, they were the people who were in safe places, mm -hmm. physically safe and legally safe places during the shooting. Yeah, yeah. And that 20 year gap between the battle and when Bill White spoke publicly for the first time, which is a 20 year anniversary article that was written in a newspaper in Tennessee where Bill first reveals that he was part of gotcha. the gang that went and shot up the jail. Um, that 20 year gap um, allowed a lot of people to make a lot of claims about their personal participation. Yeah. Um, so that inability to sort of nail down the story definitively led to a lot of people in town saying a lot of things that weren't true. So Bill White actually spent, you know, 50, 60 years to the end of his life 
hearing people take credit for things that he was in fact responsible for. Yeah, yeah. And he and, talks he talks about that because I, I would be remiss to not mention the Hallmark movie. Did you did you ever watch the uh <laughs> I watched the Hallmark movie. It's so bad. You know <laughs> so I was I was able to earn the trust of a number of the families mm-hmm. who were whose loved ones were involved in this. Yeah. And I was given access to private letters and, and private papers that no one had ever seen before. And I, I can tell you, it's like a who's who of Hollywood who would send these men letters over the years wow. trying to get them to do a movie. Wow. Big Hollywood names, you know, you got letters coming in from big studios and they just weren't interested either to keep the peace in their community mm-hmm. Right, that's a major spiking of the football. If you go out and make a movie where all of a sudden these people are the bad guys, and let me show you how awful these people were and how, yeah. how thoroughly you know we we, we defeated them, you yeah. can't can't spike the football in that way if you want to maintain the peace in your community. Um, so it's funny. So yeah, you saw a lot of attempts to try to get a movie made, including right in 1946. There was a studio who showed up in town and actually signed up some of the players to play themselves in the movie. Wow. And once they sort of stopped and thought about it and caught their breath, they said, you know, we, we can't do this if we're going to be able to, to continue, which is incredibly gracious, I thought, to give up the opportunity to be in a Hollywood movie yeah. playing yourself and uh, to have the whole country know about what you did. You're going to be the good guy in the movie, but you've, and it's probably more money than you've ever seen in your life. These were depression boys. Mm -hmm. Um, But they said, no, you know, it's more important to to maintain our sense of community here. And and so then Hallmark went ahead and made this movie. And I cannot stress this enough, loosely based (laughs) on the Battle of Athens. Um, And uh, you're probably alluding to this, but Bill White saw it and felt that it, quote, it wasn't very good. Um, And and it's not very good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it, I, that, yeah, I just keep coming back to that. I mean, for a community that had been rocked by so much, so many problems, the fact that they were able to not, um, like there wasn't the type of retaliation. I mean, even in the, the scene of the jail after they had blown it, blown off the front door, um, there's sort of like a moment where it seems like everything's going to go out of control and there's people talking about lynching. There's people talking about, um, taking immediate retaliation and then, it gets calmed down. It gets taken down a notch. So people witnessing this thought they were about to see a massacre. Mm-hmm. If you can think about this, you've got all this adrenaline pent from six hours of you shooting at these people, but also them shooting you. But then you have 10 years worth of stored up anger. These guys were sworn to protect your family and while you were away at war, they terrorized your grandparents, they terrorized your parents, they terrorized your siblings, they arrested them for no reason, they extorted them, they stole the right to vote while you were off getting shot and watching men die uh, for that right to vote. And so they were, they were justifiably quite angry. Um, and so in many cases, you saw very specific, you know, it wasn't just generalized um, anger, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to go find the guy who arrested my dad for no reason. And I am, I am going to teach him a lesson. And, uh, you know, Wendy Wise, who was the deputy who shot Tom Gillespie. I mean, people were just taking turns beating him up. Um, 
you know, and he deserved it. Um, and actually, in his from his own perspective, he gave a jailhouse interview the next day. And it's funny because the reporter, uh, credible understatement, says that Wendy Wise did not arouse the friendlier instincts of the crowd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And you can see yeah. it's like very comical. Like, have you ever saw like um, like old Nintendo games, like Mike Tyson's Punch Out, or like in between rounds, they have all these bandages over their yeah. face. Like, that's what this guy looked like. Yeah. You know, he just yeah. had like a bandage over his nose and over his head and oh. around his mouth. And, I've seen that picture. It's absolutely yeah. brutal. Yeah, yeah. They, they gave, and he's actually the only person who gets arrested out of anything that happens on August first, nineteen forty-six. Just, just Wendy is the only one that got arrested. Wow. He's the only one arrested. Nobody else had any appetite for prosecuting anybody. Even the people who'd been stealing elections from them for 10 years. Yeah. When it was over, it was over. They fought to get their right to vote back. They fought to see that the GI ticket that had been elected was sworn into office, and they went no further than that. Yeah. And if you think about other rebellions in history, that is almost unheard of. Uh, if you think about the French Revolution, Right, and the circular snake that just turned on itself, yeah. and um, they kept devouring themselves, killing themselves, yeah. purifying the movement further and further, till of course they end up with a military dictatorship just yeah. to, to try to put an end to the chaos. And then reactionary movements yeah. coming right, right. after yeah. that. Yeah. Exactly, and you get a king again, uh, you know, yeah. a few years later. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, so it's only with that sort of magnanimity that you can can cement the success of a rebellion like that. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to take up too much of your time. If you don't mind, if I ask you a couple more questions, please. I figure what your show is usually about an hour. Yeah, about that. Yeah. Yeah, we've got we're only at twenty seven minutes then. Yeah, well, you're very gracious. I appreciate it. Um, for me, please. Yeah. So the um, I guess that. You know, I always try to bring in a little bit of the modern and not get too bogged down in the modern. And I don't want to uh, get too political here, but, you know, the, the divides right now are clear. And then there's been lots of questions about election integrity now. And I wondered if this story kind of gave you any hints into the best way to at least um, unravel conflicts like over, over election integrity and things like that. Yeah, so... Um, one thing I want to say personally as an election law attorney who has been hired by campaigns all over the country, okay. uh, you know, I've practiced election law in five different states, worked with campaigns, disputed elections, contested elections, um, or worked to, to preemptively ensure election integrity. I've done this in five different states over, over 13 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one thing I can tell people is that your elections in America are incredibly transparent and incredibly reliable. Hmm. You know, that um, a lot of the fears that are being stoked right now are just completely unjustified. Hmm. Um, and so actual election fraud is actually really unusual. You know, I remember in 2009, I ran the voter integrity effort for one of the political parties in Virginia. Okay. And so we had a statewide election state of like 10 million people um, and I had a thousand poll watchers who'd been trained for what to watch for and how to help people safeguard the right to vote and about 200 lawyers working for me that day and I think we got a total of uh, just over 300 complaints throughout the day mm -hmm. and some of them were really very basic complaints very few were anybody doing anything you know intentional 
Yeah. Um, you might have someone outside a polling place causing trouble and then you know, yeah. call the police. But um, if someone wasn't following a proper procedure, it was usually due to human error or misunderstanding rather than a deliberate attempt to subvert the election. Mm. You know, I remember once here in Arizona, because we're such a quick, uh, fast growing state, mm. we get new zip codes. And so, you know, a guy called an election law hotline that I was running here um, in 2008, I believe, and said, you know, they won't let me use my ID to vote. And I said, okay, why? And he says, um, well, my zip code's not, not up to, I don't have the right zip code mm -hmm. for my address. And I said, okay. So I told him how to prove your address with alternative forms, you know, utility bills yep. and things like that. And he goes, no, nobody's zip code is right. <laughs> because the zip code had updated. And so everyone's driver's license had the old zip code. Ah, uh, no kidding. Zip, okay. It's mistakes like that. It's really not people aggressively out there trying to mm -hmm. undermine the election. If you look at like North Carolina, where you had a political operative who was junking, uh, junking voter registration forms or vote by mail um, registration forms, mm -hmm. if you didn't like the party that was on there, he got caught. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And prosecuted, like that, that, that does happen. You know, I have prosecuted one of the only cases in American history that's gone up to an appellate court on multiple voting uh, in okay. an election. It's very unusual. Most yeah. people understand that you can only vote once in an election. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is this, um, you know, we need to have confidence in our electoral system and you know, if you want to, if you're, this is something you're seriously concerned about, go volunteer to be a poll worker on election day mm -hmm. or volunteer, you know, every state I think of has rules where either political parties or candidates or both can credential observers to go in and watch the count. Mm -hmm. Go in and watch the count if you're worried about yeah. what's going to happen on election day. Yeah. Um, so you have options. Um, our elections in America are transparent. In the case of McMinn County, Tennessee, um, there was a state law that gave everyone the right to actually watch the ballots counted publicly. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, the, the machine denied them that right at the point of a gun, mm -hmm. usually accompanied by physical violence. That's not going to happen to you yeah. in 2020. If you have a potential to go in and watch the count, you're going to be allowed to watch the count. Mm -hmm. And so all parties have a right to go in and credential people to go in and observe the count. You can work the polls. Mm -hmm. um, so either as an official, you know, official election volunteer or as a representative of the party. And there are trainings that they'll put on for you so that yeah. you'll feel comfortable knowing what to look for, knowing what the rules are. If you're really concerned about this, there are many opportunities to you, more than can be filled yeah. uh, to help that this is a, a free and fair election and so i'd encourage anyone who's the least bit concerned to get out and do that because uh, american elections rely on on people conceding defeat and admitting when they've lost an election and mm -hmm. not trying to muddy the waters mm -hmm. but um, you know conceding you know, richard nixon thought he had a case to make but that it wasn't worth it wasn't worth the consequences. And, you know, Al Gore took his case all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, mm -hmm. but then very publicly accepted the result, mm -hmm. the result he wanted. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to have a fair election in America on November 3rd. Yeah. And I would encourage whether your candidate wins or loses 
um, that we, we all rally around whoever wins because we've got problems as a country and we're going to need everybody, not just one party or another to work together to, to, to fix them. That's a great message. I think you're the only person throwing that message out right now. So I appreciate that. I need to do a lot more of these shows because that's the only correct message. I mean, yeah. from my point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And so this, this reading this book and then reading, or I'm sorry, researching this book and then reading all these accounts that you must have had, you must have like broken out in hives reading about this electioneering that they were doing and this, this crazy stuff. Like America. Um, yeah. And so these records sit in the Department of Justice. If you've ever seen the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> uh, it's, it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, because you keep reading in these mainstream news accounts that people were writing to the Department of Justice from Mackman County begging for help. Mm-hmm. And I said, boy, if that's true, those will be somewhere. And so those were located in the Department of, uh, in the National Archives. Okay. Because uh, the National Archives is the custodian of DOJ's records. Yeah. And there were hundreds and hundreds of detailed affidavits of people whose accounts I never would have been able to get because they're long gone, mm-hmm. attesting to the kind of voter fraud, voter intimidation that would have been unthinkable. Um, in any other place in America, in any other year, it's just you don't recognize it as America. You would think that this was uh, Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany mm-hmm. where these kinds of fake elections are, are taking place. But it was right here in the United States and our Justice Department did very little um, to try to discourage it. And um, when, it, when it did proceed to court, and I'm talking about low-level henchmen and mm-hmm. only a handful of low-level henchmen ever, ever faced the danger of any sort of consequences, you had a corrupt judge who saw to it that... Um, that nobody was going to pay for rigging the elections in Mackman County. Wow. And so those were just sitting there. Those documents had actually never been requested. Okay. Nobody had ever even asked for them. Wow. And so it was the treasure trove of new information. Yeah. That had to light. Hundreds I, for- of- I don't remember who it was that wrote it, but they also said that they had sent something to Hoover's FBI and of course, Governor McCord's office, but the governor was part of the, the machine. But I wondered if, I guess maybe the DOJ requests were what I was reading about, the federal requests. Yeah, and so you'll find that um, there was a congressman named John J. Jennings Jr., mm-hmm. who was known as the Five J's of Jellico because he was a former judge and he put his old title. So Judge John, judge John J. Jennings Jr., Jellico, congressman for Eastern Tennessee, uh, East Tennessee, which had been a Republican bastion going back to the Civil War. Okay. So they, that was the part of the state that didn't want to cede. They didn't own slaves. Uh, they became Republican after the war. And so um, no matter what the corrupt machine did, they couldn't drive Jennings from office. And so Jennings is really the one public official who is publicly trying to get a fair election in McMinn County and bring the wrongdoers to justice. Mm-hmm. And so even though... Um, it was a Democratic administration and he was a Republican. Um, the FBI still had to take him seriously, had to take meetings with him. And when he pushed and pushed and elbowed his way in and forced them to sit down with him, forced him to sit, forced them to sit down with people in McMinn County who had been aggrieved, they finally had to do something. Um, and I would argue it was a little bit of window dressing to say that they were doing something 
but they, they, they indicted six people. The judge threw out the charges against three of them. And then the three who are convicted get a one penny fine for hitting people on the head with clubs and closing down a polling place at 10 a.m. Yeah. Um, so slap on the wrist. Yeah. It's almost, it was almost worse than if they had never been indicted mm-hmm. because the henchman could see, hey, I'm never really going to face any severe consequences for what I do. Yeah. Those were, those were both in John Jennings's personal papers and um, professional papers at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And then um, what went to DOJ was in National Archives. And so wow. that really was all brand new information yeah. and really, really illuminating. And then also, too, there was a, a lawsuit. You see, you can actually file a lawsuit against the public official who fails to do his duty, which is kind of interesting. And if a judge agrees with you, they're thrown out of office. Wow. I found in the, in the uh, archives an ouster lawsuit that had been brought against election commissioners. This was a very long, very detailed complaint detailing all of the things that had happened at polling places mm-hmm. under their watch. Yeah. Uh, and so just recollections of people who were long dead, who never got anyone or never spoke to the press, didn't write a memoir, but there it was. I had their, their crystal clear account of what happened contemporaneously. Oh. Yeah. And so it was just an amazing feeling to be on this treasure hunt, piece these, uh, piece this story together bit by bit. It was sort of like bringing up the Titanic if the Titanic was scattered throughout the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, yeah, that was that's the that's a really fascinating aspect of it because yeah, it just seems like it was really all over the place um, in terms of the the record. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the best discoveries I found was the son of a Battle of Athens veteran in San Francisco, and he's a retired agency head in, in San Francisco, and I called him. Um, so first, you know, you'd Google, you'd find out a name, you'd get a lead on someone who you think was involved, mm-hmm. you Google them invariably you're getting their obituary mm-hmm. but then you find the names of their loved ones who survived them and then it's sort of a process of tracking down those people yep. and so i tracked down bill grubb's widow and then i found bill grubb's son in san francisco and he said oh yeah my dad had a file labeled battle of athens i thought he was making fun of me you know i was just like, <laughs> okay, uh, your dad was involved in this thing 70 years ago what do you know about oh yeah he had a file labeled Battle of Athens. I thought it was a joke, but no, uh, Bill Grubb had a file labeled Battle of Athens with letters that he'd written and recollections that he'd written down of his first-hand accounts. Uh, I found family members all over the country, in Denver, all throughout Texas, uh, different parts of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. So that was, was really neat is that they had grown up outside of the sort of sanitized official version that sort of exists in McMinn County. Yeah, yeah. Because um, there is a sort of official, I would say, official version of the story. And I think, you know, we think about storytelling and mythology. There are certain stories and, and myths that civilizations create because they're necessary. Mm-hmm. I do think the what I call the official Battle of Athens story was probably necessary for, for what it needed to accomplish, which was to maintain the harmony and unity of the community. Yeah. But in the official version, really the people who were defeated in the Battle of Athens were no worse than the people who preceded them. And that isn't true. It's Mm -hmm. simply not the case that the previous administration generated a thousand complaints to the Department of Justice, or even a single complaint to Uh, the Department of Justice of election fraud. 
And I would remind you that that regime actually was defeated in an election. Right. So, right, right. I mean, they actually lost an election that nobody had to, to, to shoot them out of. Um, <laughs> nobody had to blast them out of power. So I can appreciate that the previous regime may have been corrupt and that particularly the law enforcement, because you still had, you still had that incentive to arrest people for money. Yeah. Uh, of course they took advantage of it. They actually drove a civilian conservation court camp out of McMinn County. Yeah. They kept arresting the guys with the reliable government paycheck. Yes. Yeah. That was the, that was the previous Republican. And one yeah. of, one of the main Republican operatives was sort of the one that came up with the idea of let's do a non-aligned ticket and throw our weight behind it, right? Yeah, so the last Republican sheriff before Paul Cantrell was a guy named D.C. Dugan, which stands for Davy Crockett Dugan, huh. for, for a they were related to Davy Crockett. And um, so D.C. Dugan was sort of the last of this line of Republican sheriffs. And, um, you know, Paul Cantrell said, look, we're going to abolish class favoritism in the office and we're going to give everyone a fair shot at working for us. And, you know, he's, he, he promised plainly in a full page newspaper ad, no fee grabbing deputies. Yeah. The process was called fee grabbing, where you, you make an arrest that was motivated by profit rather than for legitimate reasons. And... Um, you know, it would have been great if, if he had fulfilled those promises, right? But it doesn't take very long uh, to see that, that little has changed and pretty soon you're going to see it get a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was an important story for the town to tell itself. Yeah. That this was, hey, this had happened on both sides. And when it was over, it was over. Because I think if people were reminded that one side had really been victimized in this, mm-hmm. held at gunpoint, captured, arrested for no reason, had their homes vandalized, you know, their windows shot out, their house set on fire. Um, it'd, be, it'd be a tough thing to let go of. Yeah. So um, I had to get around that, that sort of founding mythology. And so the, the, the children of the people who participated in the Battle of Athens, who lived outside of the county, never had any such illusions. Yeah, yeah. What really happened. And so that was useful. Um, Can I yeah. ask you about a certain character, which is, is Paul Cantrell? Yeah. He, he's an interesting character. I, didn't, I wish I could have found out more about him, but I got the feeling he was a little bit hapless and was trying to climb. But like there was the Harper's uh, Magazine article where they portrayed him as this you know, pure evil psychopath. And I, he had issues, but... I, I always got the feeling he did not understand what was going on fully, but you may have a, you, you got way more into it. Yeah. So, you know, I hate to say it. Um, I think that is an important, maybe an important part of some of that mythology is that things really got worse. Cause you know, Paul Cantrell is the first sheriff under the, the new democratic regime that takes over the County. And then he passes it on to his chief deputy. He hits a six year term limit yeah. and runs for the state Senate and Justice of the Peace and Chairman of the County Board. Yeah. Um, but he passes the Sheriff's Office off to his deputy. Yeah. So I think to some degree there's the, oh, well, because Mansfield, the Chief Deputy, really does get run out of town. Yeah. And he's not part of this. He wasn't, I think part of it was because he wasn't a native. Okay. So he, was a, he, he hadn't been born in Athens. He'd come in to work on the LNN Railroad. Mm-hmm. And it was easy for him to go back to Atlanta and for them to say, you know, we don't need Mansfield. Yep. Um, so I think a lot of the, 
a lot of the mythology was, well, things really weren't bad until Mansfield got uh. put in charge. And then, you know, by then Paul Cantrell's in Nashville in the state Senate and he's got no idea what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's not so. Okay. Um, and I hate to say that because, um, you know, Paul's grandson was very helpful with this project. Mm. And he's an incredibly fine man. He's one of the most respected people in Macmillan County. And honestly, when you're going and doing these interviews, especially in close-knit communities, you'll find out who people don't like. <laughs> and sure. people will air their grievances with one another yeah. to you. People, people did that about Bill White. And personally, I think a lot of that was driven out of jealousy. That mm -hmm. this was a, his, he was a genuine war hero. Yeah. And I think that made some people feel bad about themselves and what they'd done during the war. Certainly what they'd done on the night of August 1st into 2nd, 1946. But, um, you know, Paul Wilson, Paul Cantrell's grandson, is a, a fine man and, um, and was very cooperative with this project and I think has an incredibly, has an incredibly positive point of view about it, which is I'm not responsible yeah. for what people did before me. And he loved his grandfather and his grandfather was wonderful to him. And he has nothing but fond memories of his grandfather. Um, and so you can see that Paul Cantrell's family loves him and is still intensely loyal to him. So he was clearly a great father, a great grandfather. Um, you know, his family would want me to point out and I found this to be true. There was never a whiff of scandal around any of his business affairs. Mm. So once he left politics and before he got into politics, there were never any allegations yeah. of wrongdoing. Oh. But when he was in office, there were many hundreds of allegations mm -hmm. while he was the sheriff. I mean, and look, he's clearly in charge of mm -hmm. things. Okay. And if you look at um, the primary sources, um, those who were willing to speak out would, would personally point out that he was in charge. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, going into the 1946 election, he actually tells a countywide elected official who'd run on his ticket last time, you know what, you're not on the ticket this time. Mm -hmm. Like that was the level of power he had. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to, to tell a, a fellow countywide elected official that you won't be on the ticket this time. Yeah. So no, he's in charge and he's in charge. Well, a lot of really bad things happen. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I speculated one part in the book. I can't come up with an answer. But um, you know, he sponsored some worthwhile legislation in the Tennessee Senate. So trying to fix workman's comp. Hmm. Whereas before, your employer would pick the doctor who evaluates your workman's comp claim. Okay. Yeah, you can imagine, right? Yeah. So Paul tried to make it fair and tried to give employees a say in which doctor evaluated their claim. Mm -hmm. There are also these fly-by-night business schools. Uh, just to go show you there's nothing new under the sun, you had like these fake schools popping up, charging people high tuition yeah. and, and you know, offering very limited job prospects. Mm -hmm. Paul Cantrell sponsored legislation to try to um, regulate these fly-by-night schools. But then at the same time, he's sponsoring what were called ripper bills, um, so a ripper bill is like, if you were a Democrat, you wanted to take over a Republican county, you would actually pass a bill abolishing the county, the county they call them county courts. Mm -hmm. So they would be like equivalent to a county board or county board of supervisors, county sure. in most parts of the country. And you'd pass a state law abolishing the county court 
and creating a new county court, and then you'd name the people in the bill who would serve on the new county court. So you take our solidly Republican county and make it a Democratic county. Wow. So he did that to Anderson County, Tennessee. Previously, George Woods, who was one of his most important lieutenants, mm -hmm. when he becomes the state representative for McMinn County, he sponsors a Ripper bill for McMinn County. So whereas the Republicans had had a huge majority on the McMinn County court, once George Woods passes the Ripper bill, which actually passes under very mysterious circumstances, there mm -hmm. were state senators who said this absolutely didn't pass. Yeah. The clerk of the Senate said it didn't pass. But then the governor had a signing ceremony and announced that it was law. Wow, man. And um, yeah, and they, try, they tried suing and the Supreme, you never get anywhere with the Supreme Court because they're controlled by Trump. They're yep. elected, they're controlled by Trump. And um, so, you know, he's, so Cantrell's sponsoring some worthwhile legislation, but he's also sponsoring Ripper bills. And he's voting against measures to abolish the poll tax for people who served in World War II. Yep. He wants you yeah. to come back from World War II and pay for the right to vote. Um, and so, you know, I know um, his grandson told me that he was inspired by FDR and by the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And so there were issues that animated him. And it's not really clear to me what his comfort level was with what was necessary to maintain control and maintain power. Yeah. But they continually had to ratchet up the heat. You know, elections get more and more fraudulent. From 38, his first re-election, it's, it's subtle, right? There's some problems on election day, mm -hmm. it's subtle. In 1940, ballot boxes are getting counted in the Cantrell Bank building. Yeah, right, right. by 20 state troopers. Yeah. People are getting arrested people getting arrested for trying to come in and watch the count. To, and it just keeps getting worse and worse, culminating in 1946, which was the election that the GIs contested. So he just kept digging in. He just kept, kept doing it. It's like it. having a tiger by the ears, I think. You, know? yeah. you don't want to ride the tiger anymore, but you'll have problems if you let it go. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to, to get his mind on this. I don't know. He never talked to anyone about it. Right. I will, I will just say um, that his, his family told me that there was never any source of bitterness or resentment from him. And I know some of your listeners will think, well, yeah, why would he be resentful? He was <laughs> the, right? He had no right to be resentful. But I do think it's a clue into his thinking that he was probably relieved yeah. when he was no longer responsible for keeping this organization in power. And like you've said about magnanimity, he seemed to go back, fade back into the community, went back to business. And yeah, yeah. He, the family, um, yeah, they, the, the family was running the bank. I believe they sold it not that long ago. Yeah. The bank that his father had started. So, yeah, so and, and Interesting. His father had started the first utility uh, in town. And so people would go there to cash their checks. Yeah. And he thought to himself, you know, I'm only one step away from being a bank. <laughs> and it's the most lucrative step. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cashing right. people's checks. But what if they're going and depositing it elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, in Cantrell Bank had a great reputation in the community, whereas elsewhere in the country, you saw people making runs on banks, right? Trying to yeah. get their money out and bankrupting not only their, their bank, but the person behind you in line. Yeah. And that didn't happen in McMinn County. There were very yeah. few foreclosures during the Depression and the banks and their customers all kind of trusted each other and worked together, yeah. including Cantrell Bank. Um, which I think was probably, you know, the popularity of Cantrell Bank probably did a lot to, to, to aid Paul in his first election for sheriff. Yeah. 
That's excellent. I, I wanted to ask you about one more subject that was kind of stuck in my, my head about this was sort of like the, the media reaction afterwards was a lot of national outlets showing up in town um, and, and, you know, a lot of attention that's then sort of faded and went, went the other way. And I wondered, wondered what you found out about sort of that media reaction as well as the local media that was reporting on it. Yeah, so you had about 40 reporters come to town from all over the country. Um, I think this, this got about, for, for a story that most people have never heard of, this was uh, in the New York Times, 17, 17 articles in the New York Times yeah. over the next month or so after the battle. Yeah. Uh, this was the front page, I mean, every wire service, and there were a lot of them back then, you know, INS, AP, UP, um, radio stations um, coming to town. In fact, I was able to find a, a broadcast from um, Bill Downs, who's a legendary reporter, who happened to be at Oak Ridge covering the ceremony where they were handing atomic energy over from the military to civilian control. Wow. And then he hears about this battle and he gets in his car and you know he gets, he gets to um, Athens and does some of the first interviews on the ground. So I found the transcript of the radio broadcast, yeah. his papers at Georgetown. Um, you had some really famous people, some really famous reporters like John Henry, who wouldn't mean anything to you, but he, he covered the bat, he covered World War II on like five different continents. Oh, wow. And he was the first person to interview the pilot of the Enola Gay after Hiroshima. Wow. These were legendary reporters showing up and interacting with these guys who were everyday people mm -hmm. who had just done something extraordinary just lived through something very extraordinary but now all of a sudden all these famous reporters are in town trying to get interviews with them yeah yeah and so i will say you know i think a lot of the reporters probably showed up with the idea that wow these these hayseeds just got in a big gunfight now i gotta go cover this but actually coming away with a more accurate understanding that these are good people here mm -hmm. and these are smart people these are great americans who did something that was noble you know, this wasn't just a, a riot as is characterized in some of the early coverage. It wasn't a, an election day riot. It was, um, it was a battle fought by World War II veterans for the freedoms that they fought for abroad. And so there was one story I love about a reporter who writes to his wife in New York and says, this is the best part of the country. And when we're retired, we have to get a home out here. <laughs> this is the best part of the country. So I think they had one perspective Mm -hmm. of look at those guys in the hills of Tennessee shooting at each other, mm -hmm. but came away with an incredible respect for the way, not only that these young men had, had stood up for themselves in their community, but um, how the community was able to come together afterwards, yeah. get that fair public counting of the votes, yeah. and then move on with life. Yeah. And so, um, but you know, I, I had great stories about a veteran, because a lot of these guys were still in World War II, like, you know, the, 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 the World War II military, by this point, 1946, probably only about halfway decommissioned. Yeah. You know, you still got millions of people who are still in uniform. And there was a guy who read about the Battle of Athens in Germany and figured it was something that had happened in Athens, Greece. And he's reading about his hometown in a German newspaper. Okay, wow. And so this made headlines in Japan and in Argentina and just all over the world. So for yeah. something we barely know about, I mean, the cover of the New York Post, yeah, you know, um, all over the country. And so um, 
every kind, whether they had original reporting done or were using the wire service, this story was really everywhere. And I hope I did enough to convey that in the book. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, I do want to ask you, do you have any, anything? I mean, obviously the book's coming out November 3rd, if, I believe. Um, and do you have any projects you're, you're going to be working on after this? Yeah. So actually, as soon as we're off, I have a project that I'm just getting started and getting very excited about. Um, staying with the subject of rebellions. When is it right to rebel? How do you act towards the people who have been defeated? You know, um, I'm taking a look at the Cuban Revolution, which is, of course, one of the most important events of the 20th century, brought yeah. the world to the brink of nuclear war, but is one of the least understood. And so I'm going to look at the Cuban Revolution through the frame of a man whose uh, family was killed by the Castro regime mm -hmm. and who fled to America and became a member of the army and then the CIA and wow. went out to avenge his family. No so kidding. we're going to look at that wider conflict through that frame of a man getting justice and seeking justice for his family. That is uh, excellent. Well, I, I will have you back on the on the podcast when you when you put that out. It's been um, a joy. Are you sure there's not? I've done a lot of talking. Are you sure you don't have any other questions you want to ask me? No, no. That was really that was really a great overview. I think what's really awesome is that you've done the the hard work here of getting this researched and, and getting all those sources and putting them together. Because just having done my little slice of it, I, mm -hmm. I was like, this is a gargantuan story. I mean, it's huge. So many players. Getting, you know, Jim Buttram, who's campaign manager for the GI ticket. Yeah. His widow died about a, a year before I started this. Mm. And that forced their children to go into a safe in the garage that they had never seen opened. And that was where their father's confidential papers for the Battle of Athens were. Wow. So the secret, because the, the GI movement emerges in secret, yeah. right? And they're meeting in secret yeah. under the threat of their lives. Yeah. So to find Jim Buttram's private correspondence and his papers and letters. So this, this information was just, I think, months, years away from just being lost, you know, and, and where nobody would have been able to track it down. But yeah, and can I ask you, like, time. what cued you off to it, too? I mean, what, like, how did, I mean, the timing sounds like it was right on point, but then how did you find out about it and then, and then jump in? So I wish I knew how I found out about the battle of Athens. Like, it's just kind of been one of those things that I'd always known that there had been an election, there'd been some World War II veterans that had responded militarily to an attempt to steal an election, mm -hmm. and that it was sort of famous for being the only successful rebellion in American history. Yeah. And that was all I knew. I didn't okay. know anything more about it, which I think is what a, what a lot of people know, right? And I wish I knew, because I get that question all the time, and I bet I'm going to get a lot more as I go out on, on yeah. publicity for this book. But um, it was one I'd always thought, boy, that'd be a good idea for a book. And I finally did decide to do it. I should have done it a couple years earlier, I think, mm -hmm. because I would have caught a couple people who were still alive that yeah, I would have yeah. talked to. Yeah. But any earlier, and people would have given me the same pushback that they gave to everyone who came before me. That's what it seems like, yeah. And I imagine there was people out there trying to find find out more before there you. Were, in fact, Bill White's grandson, who helped me get access to the tapes mm -hmm. and access to, to his grandmother, Bill White's widow, says that people contact the family all the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he just never had the trust level. For whatever reason, you know, Travis uh, decided to trust me. Yeah. 
yeah. with Grandpa's story. Yeah. Um, but I do think that they were very touchy about it just because um, so many people had taken credit for what his grandfather had done. David Hutzel, who is one of the principal, you know, you've seen that photo of the three men shooting out the window. Yep. So I actually have identified those men. Oh, great. And I got a picture of myself actually holding the rifle that the shirtless man is holding. Yeah, and yeah. His name is David Hutzel. Okay. Uh, who's a rifleman in the army. And he's shooting out the window of that boarding house that overlooks jail. So the family that was living there evacuates the boarding house mm-hmm. and the GIs move in and use it to fire on the jail. And um, David Hutzel really never cared about getting credit for this. Hmm. And he would sit at the Elks Lodge as an old man and people would talk about what they did in the Battle of Athens. And he knew they weren't there and he never bothered to correct them and it never bothered him. Um, which I don't, I don't understand that mentality. I think it's a, it's a generational thing. I think a lot of those guys never discussed the World War II experience. Yeah. And for the GIs who fought the Battle of Athens, this was part of their World War II experience, wasn't it? This, yeah. They saw this really as World War II didn't end for them when they got home. It ended for them when they shot these guys out of the jail and yeah. liberated their hometown. Yeah. And so something that they didn't discuss. And so I just tried to find every name I could associated with it and track down every relative that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go to just, and I'll just give you one example that I actually use in the book. There was a, a young GI from Buffalo who wrote a letter to Jim Buttram. It's in his Buttram's private papers. And it asked Buttram a bunch of questions about what happened. And I was like, boy, if Buttram ever wrote this guy back, that would be a really useful letter to get. You know, the GIs, were, they were conceived in secret. That, that mm-hmm. political movement was born in secret. So yeah. it was very hard to get the insight on, on how it happened. And um, I tracked down, so I found out his obituary. I found his wife's obituary. I found one of their daughters on Facebook. <laughs> I get a letter from your dad written in 1946. And I need to know if there was ever a reply. Yeah. If you'd have it. Wow. And so, they didn't have the reply, but I want you to know and your, your listeners and viewers to know that those were the lengths I went to to find every scrap of information. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my consolation prize was I got to show a woman who hadn't heard from her father in 20 years. You know, he's, been, he's passed away. I got to show her a letter she'd never seen before that he wrote when he was a young man. Yeah. Yeah, and that was like a consolation prize to be able to reconnect her with that letter from her father. And she say, oh, that was my grandparents' address. That must have been where he was living after the war. And wow, so new to know that he was interested in this story. Wow. Chris, did you know that that was the experience you're going to have? Because so many of your other books are far history, um, you know, yeah. more, than, more than a couple of generations. There are, as far as I know, nobody living or even close to living in any of the books you've done. No, and I keep promising myself every book. I write Founding Rivals, Congressman Lincoln, The President's War. Every book I tell myself, I'm going to interview people. I'm going to, my next subject is going to be with someone I could pick up the phone and interview if I yeah. know. Because it's so hard to try to extrapolate what happened from a fragment of an old document or trying to connect dots. Yeah. Know. The next thing I want to do is going to be something where I can call somebody up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and um, so I actually thought it'd probably be a little bit easier than it was. Hmm. I thought with all these veterans around town and sort of a thawing of the ice around the story towards the end that um, someone would have sat these guys down and done an oral history Yeah, with all these guys. No one ever did. 
Right. And so people were allowed to go to their graves with these incredible stories that they never recorded. Um, and so I thought those would at least be out there. I thought I'd get more firsthand views. I was lucky to get Bill White's, mm-hmm. you know, where he's talking for hours about yeah. what it was like to fight the Battle of Athens. Yeah. Um, but I also had some wonderful experiences with um, like uh, Jimmy Lockmiller, his, uh, his son, um, Randy, who's a retired police captain in Knoxville. And Randy was, was one of those sons whose father had never mentioned this to them. He grows up in Oak Ridge. He doesn't know anything about the Battle of Athens. He's working security at the Knoxville Convention Center, moonlighting. And some guy goes, Lockmiller? Are you, you kin to Jimmy Lockmiller? And he says, that's my dad. And he says, you know, your dad was a hero of mine. And he was involved in the Battle of Ballots and Bullets, which is what, it's what some of the old timers and locals call the Battle oh, of Ballots. They call no it the kidding. Battle of Ballots and Bullets, which is a cool name. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think the popular name Battle of Athens comes from that Theodore White article, yes. which, which was the first real uh, long form attempt to, to tell the story. Um, but um, yeah, so, so uh, Randy called up his dad and he goes, Dad, what's this about the Battle of Ballots and Bullets? Because there's a pause on the phone and his dad says, who have you been talking to? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> He would have been content to never tell his son about that story. Oh, man. It's like his wartime experience, you know. But he was a Marine who served on Guadalcanal, who mm-hmm. came back after his service was done and guarded the bomb at Oak Ridge. And so his dad had had this incredible life story and contribution. And that generation just couldn't take credit for anything. They, uh, you know, they, they liberated the world. And uh, some of them, you know, hadn't finished high school. But... Mm-hmm. About two thirds of the military that won World War II didn't have a high school degree. So these were young kids, these were poor kids in many cases. And they, they went on to, to do the, accomplish the most important task in human history, which yeah. is to defeat the Axis powers. And they went to their graves thinking, gosh, I never did very much with my life. It's just uh, astonishing. And it's, it's um, really hard to connect that with a generation that feels the need to Instagram their lunch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. what I did today. I had lunch. Right, absolutely. <laughs> then that's, that's got to be an interesting perception because it seems like ancient history at this point, right? The, yeah. the world wars and yeah, wow, what a, what a juxtaposition. And uh, I mean, does it, does it sort of... Uh, did it humble you at all? Like, how did you feel about it? Like, you know, did you pull any lessons from it? You know, um, just the, the greatest generation earned their sobriquet um, in more ways than I think we can even possibly appreciate. Yeah. And I think we, we need to focus on their example, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, just being, being honorable people and having integrity and doing the right thing, even when it's not the easy thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I completely disavow political violence. Um, but that can take, you know, doing the right thing when it's not the easy thing doesn't mean that you should get your gun and go out in the street. It's yeah. the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, it can happen in a lot of contexts, right? In life where we're called on to do something that is hard, but also the morally correct choice. Yeah. And in these guys' cases, right, with their backs completely up against the wall, after a decade of having their county essentially run by a criminal syndicate, mm-hmm. right? 
that stole elections at gunpoint, that arrested people illegally, incarcerated people illegally, um, you know, enacted reprisals against their political enemies. In that moment, those GIs did the right thing, but that situation is not replicable in the United States today. Mm -hmm. We have a decade of the same criminal conduct. You know, getting forced out of a polling place at gunpoint, you'd have your Facebook Live, you'd be on, you'd be on Facebook Live, yep. you'd be on CNN, it'd be on Fox, the DOJ would respond, yeah. you know, the governor wouldn't be able to, you know, hide behind, you know, wouldn't be able to feign ignorance about what was happening. This is a different era, and this is an era where that was possible. I don't think we live in an era where that's possible. Yeah. Uh, but, but the idea of doing the right thing when it's not the easy thing, even if we're not specifically mimicking their example in this case, but being brave and having integrity and, uh, and humility. Um, I mean, you can never spend enough time with the greatest generation. We really need to, to absorb some of those lessons. Yeah, absolutely. And pass them on. I think that's a great way to end this. I think that's fantastic. And I want fun. And thank you for your patience as I uh, dealt with the imminent fatherhood and then yeah. fatherhood. This is this, this uh, your first. My first interview for this book and my first interview since the my son Ben came. And this book is dedicated to him. Excellent. Well, yeah. Props to you and and congratulations on getting this out in a in a very strange year. Um and of all the years this could have come out between now and 1946, I've got to say, um, I mean, literally to write a book where you're talking about fighting over ballots sent through the mail and you got specific fights over mail fraud and absentee balloting. And now all of a sudden that's a national story. It really is uncanny to see America become a macrocosm of Athens in Mackman County in 1946. Yeah. So we saw how that one ended. Let's let's not continue down that road. I think and that's great. Let's yeah. have a peaceful and fair election and let's accept the result, whether it's the one we wanted or the one we, we didn't want. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's been an honor and appreciate it. I can't wait to read the book. I, I got it. I, you know, it's going to come in day after the election. I can't wait <laughs> to read it. So um, all the best. Uh, let me know if you if you think of anything else you want to send to the uh, the listeners. But I'll try to get this up um, pretty soon. I have one thing I got to leapfrog it into, and then we'll be good. Sounds wonderful. We'll talk to you then. Yeah. Look good luck with the yeah. Good luck with the next one too. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right. Bye now. Bye bye. And that's a wrap. Thanks again for listening. It was great talking to Chris. Make sure you pick up a copy of the Fighting Bunch. And visit Chris's website, www.chrisderosebooks.com. That's Chris, D-E-R-O-S-E, books.com, to see where to order The Fighting Bunch as well as some of his other books. I'm definitely interested in reading Star Spangled Scandal about a congressman who killed his wife's illicit U.S. attorney lover who happened to be the son of Francis Scott Key. Yes, that Francis Scott Key. Thus igniting the kind of scandal that captured the attention of the nation. I mean, can't get enough of scandals, right? As usual, we'd love to hear from you here at the Tinderbox Podcast. Email us at tinderboxpodcast at gmail.com. Go to our Facebook page or SoundCloud page. And until I talk to you again, be safe out there in the Tinderbox.